Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church Podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. I didn't say anything about this to the other couple services, but just to give you an, a glimpse, an idea of what it's like to be a pastor at New Spring, to be able to just tell a team, I need you guys to do Desperado, and I walk away from that, and they put this together by the time we have the first week. This is, this is how awesome God has been to our team to allow us to come together, and it's, it's just amazing. Well, the song that you just heard has an interesting history. You know, uh, uh, Don Henley, Glenn Fry uh, did some co-writing uh, when they were sort of getting the, the Eagles sound developed. Their you know, first album was quite successful. Uh, Desperado was part of their sophomore album, the second release. Had kind of a cowboy theme, if you remember. And uh, so when Don Henley and Glenn Fry got together for a, a writing session, uh, Don grabbed a, a piece of partially written music out that he had been working on. He'd been working on the song for a while, just never quite made it. He had little remnants of melody and little remnants of lyrics, but nothing that was cohesive yet. Uh, but it did have kind of a cowboy sound to it. And uh, so the two of them put it together and it's the song that we now know as Desperado. But what you should know is that was not the way the lyric was originally written. Uh, the original lyric, as Don Henley had written it, uh, was Leo, why don't you come to your senses? wouldn't have been the same. Leo, why don't you come to your sense? I just wouldn't have been the same, you know? Uh, there was a friend, Don Henley had a friend named Leo that he felt like was really making a lot of stupid mistakes and he was writing the song about, you know, why don't you come to your senses? It was very interesting for me because I always thought of the song as just written theoretically, written hypothetically, but it made a lot more sense to me when I realized this song was personal. It was originally written very personally. That was a specific person that this was written to. And it so explains why it pulls on our heartstrings so much because all of us have had a Leo in our life at some point in time or another. There's always somebody that we know that we say to ourselves, why? Why don't you come to your senses? Why cannot you figure it out? I can see the end game of the path that you're on, and you should be able to see it, but you obviously don't or can't or choose not to. Why don't you come to your senses? Why are you continuing to go down this road? It makes perfect sense to me that Don Henley was so absorbed in that sort of grieving thing that it came out in music. It was a, his creative outlet, but I think for all of us, it comes out in different ways. For some of us, it comes out as anxiety. For some of us, it comes out as depression. For some of us, uh, maybe it comes out as anger, but there is that sort of outpouring of emotion that comes from grieving over someone's choices. I've, I have, over the years, worked with so many people who it was their kid, it was their brother, it was their sister, it was their parent, and they've shed real hot tears in my office running down their face because ultimately all they want is the best for the other person. I think we all have that. There's a benevolent spirit. We want the best for the other person, but we know that's not happening. Well, you know me, I like to define terms. Uh, and so let's just go ahead and define what a desperado is, at least for the, for the purposes of this series. A desperado is a person that stubbornly chooses a path that hurts themselves and others. And that word stubborn is important there. 
Because the Bible differentiates two kinds of people. In Proverbs, it's very clear that there are wise people and there are foolish people. But it's important to know that both wise people and foolish people make mistakes. Both wise people and foolish people do wrong things. The key difference is that a wise person can receive feedback, they can receive instruction, and they are actively looking for knowledge. So they are learning. They're, and by the way, we're going to talk about this later in the series of what is repentance. Repentance is learn and turn, learning and turning. So a person who is humble is already in the process of learning, and they're willing to submit to the process to make changes. But a foolish person, a desperado is a person who cannot be reasoned with, and they certainly are not going to change the path that they are on. So there is at least some recognition that the path that I'm on is not a good one, but there is no willingness to turn around. There is no willingness to change. A desperado is a person who refuses to repent in scriptural terms. They say, I'm going to keep going down this road. doesn't matter if it hurts somebody. doesn't matter if it hurts me. I'm going to keep going down this road. And I think that is why it just is like, it blows our mental circuits. Why would somebody do that? Why would somebody cause harm when they don't have to? And yet we know that in the world that we live in, it happens. And sometimes to some of the best people, maybe that this person was a friend of yours and they did things for you that nobody's ever done for you. I mean, you think of them, you put them up on a pedestal because there's so many wonderful aspects of them. But then they started going down this road and you're like, what happened to this relationship? Our relationship was so good. We were doing so good. What has happened here? Dealing with a desperado raises a lot of, you know, really difficult questions. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago in a message that I've been here for 11 years, 11 wonderful years. Getting to serve New Spring for 11 years has been a dream come true. When I first started here, um, on my list of responsibilities was to do marriage counseling, pastoral marriage counseling. And so I had kind of envisioned as I came up here to do this job, people would come into my office and they'd say, well, we're having fights, you know, we need some help with fighting or we don't communicate well or something like that. And definitely over the years, those have been themes that I've, I've heard a lot and I've written on those topics and made a lot of resources on those topics. But apparently God decided to teach me how to swim by throwing me into the deep end of the pool. Because the first week I came in, those were not the, the things that I got. I remember one of the first couples I talked to, uh, one of them had been found in an affair. But the, the other person found out that they were in an affair. And they came into my office, um, and the person who was having an affair said to their spouse, I am not going to leave the person that I'm having an affair with. Um, but we have children. I will stay with you for the sake of the children, but I'm still going to be with this person that I'm having an affair with. And I remember to this day, they said, that is the offer on the table. You can take it or leave it, but it doesn't make much difference to me. I'm 29 years old. I'm a brand new pastor, and I'm going, what have I got myself into? <laughs> but I remember as that woman looked across at me in the room and said, Pastor, what do I do? What am I supposed to do with that? Hard questions. Well, it wasn't that hard. I said, tell him when he can pick his stuff up. But, um, uh, but the questions are more like this. The questions are more like, should I try to pressure them to change? Should I, should I try to, should I, should I try to persuade them? Or when do you turn the other cheek and when do you set a firm boundary? Like when is it showing God's love to extend grace and then, but, but when is that, when is that 
allowing yourself to be abused, when do you have to take a firm line, right? How do you make them come to their senses? Spoiler alert, you cannot. You cannot. Or uh, even, and, and by the way, let me, let me quickly finish the thought I started a moment ago. Same week, I have a couple come in and uh, one of them was found in an opiate addiction. And um, which my heart goes out to that person because opiate addiction is incredibly hard to fight. Once you're hooked on it, it's very, very difficult to get loose from that. Um, but this person said, I will submit to the process, I will get off of these pills, but I am not going to end any of my friendships. And the spouse tells me, but the best friend is a dealer, their dealer, and, and the rest of them use. But this person is saying, uh, well, you know what, I can still be friends with them and still not, not do that. I mean, that's ridiculous, right? But that is what it's like to be with a desperado, and you're trying to figure out, well, how do I respond to that. One of the other things is if they change their hurtful behavior, what should my response be, right? I've seen this so many times. I mean, this that I'm getting ready to tell you about has come into my office over and over again. Let, let's say that a, a, a woman's husband cheats on her and she is devastated, wants to do whatever she can do to save the relationship. He won't have any of it. He's a brick wall. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna end the affair. I don't wanna stay married to you. He fouls for divorce. She's just broken down. And then, you know, they end up divorced. A couple years later, she ends up in a healthy relationship with another guy. And suddenly, ex-husband ends up on her doorstep saying, I have changed and I want us to have restoration in our marriage. What do you do? Folks, those are hard questions, right? We're gonna learn, by the way, again, spoiler alert, because I don't wanna leave any of you hanging, but the story that we're gonna look at teaches us that we can celebrate when a person comes back to God, but we cannot always restore what was lost. We cannot always recreate what was squandered. But that aside, for years, I have used the story of the prodigal son, or maybe in your scripture, it's labeled as the story of the forgiving father or the story of the lost son. It's, it's been called different things over the years. But I've used that story over and over. When I was 29 and just starting in this job, I told you about this first week. All I knew to do all the way back then to the very first week is pull out my Bible and open up to Luke 15. And I have to tell you, 11 years and three degrees later, I still open up my Bible to Luke 15. Luke 15, Luke 15, there's a broken spot in the spine of my Bible, Luke 15. And by the way, if you're wondering, today we're gonna be in Luke 15. So if you have your Bible and you wanna open it to Luke 15, that's where we're gonna be. And one of the reasons for that is in this story of the lost son, let me back up for a second. I've heard pastors that have tried to squeeze truths out of parables in the scripture where they are not. And they've tried to really come up with all kinds of angles uh, that they can use to teach, you know, eight truths out of a parable that really is designed to teach one truth. But I have to tell you, the prodigal son is the opposite of that. There are so many lessons to learn in this one story that it's gonna take us four weeks to unpack it. And this week, next week, and the week after that, we're gonna talk about the three most common mistakes that people make when they have somebody in their life that's off the rails. And it's kind of like be, uh, a countdown. Today, we start with the third most common. The reason I'm going backwards instead of forwards is because it's gonna take me a long time to get through the narrative today. So we'll, at the very end of the narrative, we'll really hammer home that third mistake. And then next week, the second, and then the third week, the number one mistake that people make. Um, and then again, we're gonna talk in the last week about the fact that a desperado can come home. But in this story, we're gonna find that Jesus has packed in all kinds of key truths for setting boundaries and having a loving, healthy relationship with a person who's a desperado. Um, and by the way, this is, to, to set up 
this story. If you start reading Luke 15 at the beginning, you'll notice that Jesus is teaching and he's having to deal with the Pharisees who were constantly a problem in Jesus' ministry. The Pharisees were super church people. I don't know if you've ever met a super church person that has the cape and all that stuff, right? That the, like, they are excellent posers, right? Um, the Bible tells us, in case we're wondering, there is no person that is perfect, except there are a lot of church people that have forgotten that and have the impression that there is some sort of major divide between them and everyone else in the world. They are the sanctified, special, chosen, apart from everybody else, and they become lifted up within themselves. That's the Pharisees, right? Now, what you have to understand is that if you do not understand who Jesus is when he's on earth, if you're in that time frame and you don't really get that he's the son of God, you would at least know that he was a religious teacher. That was his reputation. You would understand that at least that is the characterization of him. But if you were a religious teacher at the time, what you did to be a successful religious teacher is you went to the temple, you hung out with the Pharisees and the hyper-religious people, you rubbed shoulders with them, you ingratiated yourself to the Pharisees and the scribes and really got in good with them and they would help you. Once you got your foot in the door, they would sort of help elevate you up through the ranks. Problem was Jesus wouldn't play the game and after all these years, 2,000 years later, God still has no interest in playing church games with people. He has no interest in playing the religion game. When Jesus came to earth, he did not come to earth to hang out with church people. He came to hang out with people who needed the, the gospel that the church was meant to disseminate. He, he wanted to be with people who were broken and hurting and who were willing to recognize their brokenness and who recognized their need for a savior and who were willing to talk to him and interface with him about it. I promise you, if Jesus were physically on earth today, walking around as he did in his ministry, he would not be going to church to be seen. He would be going to church to bring people with him because it was always about a seek and rescue mission. But there will always be church people who do not want broken people in their church. There will always be church people who will be uncomfortable when somebody shows up to church who does not look like them, does not talk like them, does not use the churchy words, and doesn't know the songs to sing. That was the Pharisees. And Jesus is trying so hard to explain to them the power of redemption. They don't get it yet. To them, looking good is the important thing. To God, restoration of what is lost is the important thing. And so there's this trilogy of stories in Luke 15, three stories about finding what was lost, recovering what was lost, what was lost coming home. And Jesus is trying to explain to them how important it is to, and, and how primary it is to God. Which is why, by the way, when God gave us, when Jesus gave us the great commission, what, did, what was it all about? It was all about continuing the seek and rescue mission that Jesus was on when he was on earth. We have become the flesh and blood extension of Jesus' ministry on that seek and rescue mission. That is what he's called us to do. That is primary. That is the most important thing that God is concerned about. Why is it important that we talk about how we respond to desperados? Because that is actually what God has called us to do. The main thing God has called us to do is to show wise, caring, God-honoring love to people whose lives are not in alignment with God. So in Luke 15, and by the way, we'll come back later on in the series to the other two stories in the series of three. But right now we're going to fast forward to the third story, a very familiar story for most of us. And I said most of us have, have learned it as the story of the, the prodigal son. I just wanna walk through this story with you. And, and so uh, please bear with me. I know the first week 
We have so much set up to do. I'm, I'm hoping very much you'll come back next week because we'll, we'll get into the content a little more. But this week, we really have to go uh, through the narrative and, and really establish this. So this is in Luke 15, verse 11, to illustrate the point further. And again, the point that Jesus is illustrating is the importance of redemption. Jesus told them this story. A man had two sons, and the younger son told his father, I want my share of your estate now before you die. Well, in this time in the ancient world, if you had two sons, the way the inheritance would work is this. Your older son would get the property and it would, between the property and wealth that the older son got, it would accumulate to two thirds of the parent's wealth. As the oldest child in my family, I think that's a very spiritual and sacred way of doing things. Um, <laughs> but I'll, I'll leave it there. The, if you had two sons, the younger son would get a third of the estate. In the Jewish uh, world, it was expected that you would stay, all the kids would stay, look after the parents, help, help them uh, up to the point of their death, and then the whole cycle would start again, and your kids would look after you. And there was actually a sort of, of moral imperative uh, that you didn't just check out on your parents. But in other cultures, it was not terribly uncommon that the more kids there were and the smaller your inheritance was, because you're farther and farther down the line, the smaller your inheritance is, uh, and you're not gonna end up with the property anyway, you might ask your parent for your inheritance before they die so you can go ahead and start your life um, with that money. But again, in the Jewish culture, that would have been considered improper, but it was done. And so here you have the younger son deciding to do that. And he goes and he asks for his portion of the inheritance. But what you have to understand is how insulting this would have been culturally. It, it is tantamount to saying, Dad, you are flat out not dying fast enough. I mean, you're looking haggard, I'll give you that, you know. Um, you're, you're looking kind of old, and, and, but, but no, you're not dying fast enough. Uh, I want my money now to do what, what I wanna do. Now, can I break the, the structure of the story here for a moment to tell you that maybe one of the most important things of using Luke 15 as a template to deal with these situations is that what we are gonna learn from this story is that how God loves a desperado is completely counterintuitive to what would come naturally to us. In this story, because this is a story that Jesus is telling, we call it a parable, meaning Jesus is illustrating a truth through a story that he's telling. In this story, the son represents you and me and the father represents God. We're literally going to get to see how God deals with a person who's a desperado, a person who's off the rails. And so what you're gonna find out is that the father does a lot of things that I don't think any of us would do. I mean, first of all, the son goes to the father and says, I want you to write me a check for a third of your estate. And if that's Jonathan, you know what I say? I say, no. I know what a little twerp you are. If I write that check, you're gonna go spend it on stuff that is no good. You're gonna get rid of all that money. It's gonna put you in a bad situation. You're gonna take risks with your health and take risks with everything else. I've worked too hard to build this, to hand it over to you until you get some maturity, until you figure it out. I'm not gonna do that until I'm in a box. You don't get the money. But you know what? The Bible says the father agreed. The father agreed to divide his wealth between his sons, and we'll talk about why in a minute, but that, to me, seems counterintuitive. A few days later, this younger son packed all his belongings and moved to a distant land. Yet again, if Jonathan is the dad, I'm saying, I'm not letting you out of this house. I'm not letting you out of this house. I'm locking you in your room. We will slide food under the door. Because <laughs> if I let you out of this house, no telling what you're gonna do. And yet the father lets him leave. 
And then he moves to a distant land. And there he wasted all his money in wild living. Now, we don't know exactly what wild living means here, but the brother, later on, his older brother, fills in some of the blanks by letting us know that he spent a majority of his money on prostitutes. Now, I gotta tell you, if Jonathan is the father, and I hear, I hear reputation, I hear the, 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 uh, the rumors that the son is off spending money on prostitutes, you know what I do? I get, in, I get in my car, I go to the far off country, and I drag that kid back by his ear. And I say, you are coming home with me. I'm going to straighten you out. But the father never goes to the far off country. It's counterintuitive. So he wastes all his money. About the time his money ran out, and how many of us can testify to the fact that the money will run out? A great famine swept over the land, and he began to starve. And he persuaded a local farmer to hire him, and the man sent him into his fields to feed the pigs. The significance of this is really important, and I need you not to miss it. For any self-respecting Jewish person, because the Jewish law considered pigs unclean, you did not get anywhere close to a pig. You stayed at a distance it was part of your religion that you stayed at a distance from pigs. And yet, the only way he was able to get a job was to be the butt of a joke. That a guy was willing to hire him to send him out to feed the pigs so that the guy could have his friends over and say, check out the Jewish boy I have feeding the pigs. This series is really not for a person who is making bad choices. This series is really more for a person who loves somebody who's making bad choices, but I need to take a time out and go off script for just a second and say, if you're a person in this room and you know you're going down a bad road and you're kind of stubbornly choosing to keep going down that road, can I warn you what the prodigal son needed to know, which is that at some point, you will have to trade away everything that is important to you just to survive. If you keep going down this road, at some point, you'll have to trade away your dignity You'll have, to trade, you'll have to trade away your sense of self. At some point, going down this road will demand everything that you have, and that still will not be enough. The Bible tells us that he wished he could eat the pods he was feeding the pigs. I mean, how many, this is a farm community. How many of y'all have seen what you feed pigs? Right, it's not particularly appetizing. It's not anything that any of us want. But he got so hungry that the pods he was feeding looked good to him. We've all had that experience if you get so hungry, things that are not attractive start to look, look appetizing. But what I want you to notice is not just that it looked good to him, he must have asked because the next line says, but no one gave him any. I mean, this kid was so hungry, he asked to eat the pig food and they would not let him eat the pig food. It's important that we talk about this because when you hit rock bottom, When someone that you love hits rock bottom, the first thing that you wanna do, if you're like me, is you wanna rescue them. If I'm the father and I find out that my kid is so hungry, he wants to eat the food that they're feeding the pigs and they won't even give him that, this time I'm not driving there to grab him by the ear, I'm driving there to take care of him because of how bad a situation that he's in. And I don't wanna spoil where we're going in week three, but can I just make the point to you of where this sentence is located when he finally came to his senses. Because this kid didn't come to his senses until he reached that low. It took that low before he was able to get there. Even though for me, I would say no son of mine is gonna be in that kind of spot. I'm, I'm talking to somebody in this room, you've not gotten so much as a speeding ticket because you are a rule follower. 
I mean, you overpay on your taxes just to stay away from the appearance of evil. Like you want everybody to know, I follow all the rules and then one of your kids ends up in jail. And you say to yourself, no kid of mine is gonna sit in a jail cell. And you go bail them out. But it may be the jail cell that they need in order for them to come to their senses. Sometimes God is at work doing something in someone's heart when they're at rock bottom and when we interfere, we short circuit the lesson that they're learning at that moment. Oh, I'm not saying that there shouldn't be grace. What I'm saying is sometimes God communicates with a megaphone to us when we're at rock bottom and what we need to make sure we're not doing is interrupting the message that God is sending. He comes to his senses and he says to himself at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare and I just, man, this could probably be a 15 week series. At home, this is what I love. That means that somewhere in the heart of the prodigal, he understood that the brothel was never home and this farm where he's feeding pigs was never home. Somehow in his crazy messed up view of the world, he still understood where home was. At the end of this talk, I'm gonna talk about why we shouldn't give up on someone when they're making bad choices, but this is one of the main reasons because there's gotta be a home for a broken person to come home to. One of the reasons why God created the church, the church is supposed to be a lighthouse and a hospital for the broken and the wounded and the people that need help. And if the church is not the church, then there is no place for the broken to come home to. First and foremost, New Spring Church, we have to be a place where broken people can come home. He says, at home, even the hired servants have food enough to spare, and here I'm dying of hunger. And then he comes up with his plan. And this is a whole other sermon that was on the docket, but we, we weren't able to make it, so I'm gonna preach a, a sermon in 20 seconds. Here we go. He says, I will go home to my father and say, so the first thing is, a really repentant person, because I get asked this all the time, how do I know if a person's really repentant? First of all, he understands, father is not gonna come to me, I have to go to them. Amen? I, I, cannot expect, I cannot be repentant and expect the other person to do the work. I'm gonna have to do the work. I gotta go home. And then he says, I'm gonna say, Father, I have sinned against both heaven and you. That is taking responsibility. A repentant person will always take responsibility. A person who does not take responsibility, you can write it down, underline it, put an exclamation mark after it. They are not repentant. A person who will not take responsibility is not repentant. He's willing to admit his sin, not just his sin to God, but his sin against his father. And then he says, I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. This is important, this is huge. He's saying, I get that things have changed. Now the father does not want him to be a servant. The father still wants him to be a son. And that is part of God teaching us in this story that even when we go far afield from the God who has adopted us as our heavenly father, our status never changes as a son. However, it is important that the son realizes I cannot sweep in and dictate that I have exactly the same restored relationship with my father that I had before I did this. I cannot tell you how many couples I've worked with where somebody has cheated on their spouse and swept back into the relationship and said, because I have decided I'm not gonna have this affair anymore, I need our relationship to be back at 100% where it was before. That cannot happen. It doesn't work that way. And that's not what repentance looks like. Repentance always involves a humility that says, I get that things have changed. I get that my behavior has changed things. And he says, please take me on as a hired servant. What is that? That's submitting to the process. If there's a process for restoration, I'm willing to submit to it. 
And again, I, I hate to like keep going, I sound like a broken record, but I cannot tell you how many people I've worked with in my office where they, they come in saying they want the relationship to be rebuilt, but there is a very clear process in front of them for rebuilding the relationship. It just seems like too much work to them. There's gotta be a willingness to submit to the process. And while he was still a long way off, his father saw him coming. Now, again, I, 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 if I have a problem with the way that I read scripture, some, some of my friends who are, are biblical scholars, they're so good at the life and times of the Bible. And when they imagine the Bible, it's, you know, they imagine it in the right time with all the right things. I have a really hard time with that. I'm very anachronistic. So I think of the Bible in more modern terms. And when I imagine things, I sort of see it that way. And when I think of the story, I see the father as he places a framed photograph of his son on the, the mantle between two windows. And every day as he walks by that fireplace mantle and sees his son's picture, he grieves because we grieve. Do we not, church, when we love somebody and they're making bad choices, we grieve. But then again, the Apostle Paul told us how to grieve, remember? The Apostle Paul says, when a Christian grieves, we should not grieve as those who have no hope. So the father grieves with hope. There is a grief that his son is making mistakes. There's a grief that his son is doing the wrong thing. There's a grief about where his son has chosen to live and what he's chosen to do. And yet there is a hope that someday he will return. I think one of those days he goes and he sees that picture, but out through the window next to the fireplace, he sees his son coming from a long way off. And this is what I love. The Bible says that when he sees his son coming, filled with love and compassion, so we know what God's attitude is toward us when we come home, he ran to his son, embraced him, and kissed him. Church, don't miss this because it is so important. When a person repents and they truly learn and turn and start to go toward God, the beauty is God is saying, you do not have to come all the way. As you run to me, I'm running to you, and we will meet halfway. And when I say meet halfway, I don't mean compromise. What I mean is that when we turn around and we start to move toward God, God is saying, I'm not standing there with my arms folded saying, you better, you know, you better come on your hands and knees. And by the way, that's another way that God and I are different. Because if I see my son coming home after all that, I'm like, you better come with a good story, buddy. And I, I'll think about whether or not I'm answering the door, right? But God, instead of standing there with his arms folded in the story, God runs out. The, the father runs out to the son and meets him in the middle, embraces him and kissing him, the warmest Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern greeting at the time. A welcome spirit. The son starts his speech. Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you, and I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. That's part A of the speech. We know from earlier there's a part A and a part B. He never gets to part B because the father interrupts him. His father said to the servants, quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet. Kill the calf we've been fattening for a feast. We must celebrate for this son of mine was dead and has, has now returned to life. He was lost, but now he's found. That's where we get the lyrics for Amazing Grace. So the party began. Meanwhile, the older son, right, who's representative, by the way, in this case of the Pharisees. So when Jesus is telling this story, the son is a sinner who's been off track. The father is God. The older son is the Pharisees. The older son was working in the fields, and when he returned home, he heard music and dancing in the house, and he, uh, he asked one of the servants what was going on. Your brother is back, he was told, and your father has killed the fattened calf. We're celebrating because of his safe return. And the older brother, this represents the Pharisees, was what? He was angry. You, you, Jesus is saying, redemption is the most important thing to me. Somehow the religious crowd gets angry. We bring, there is redemption, there is finding the lost soul, and there is anger, and he wouldn't go in. He's pouting, you know? And he's a good whiner, too. Check this out. When his father begs him to come in, he replied, all these years, 
I'm slave for you, never once refused to do a single thing you ever told me to do. In all that time, you never gave me even one young goat for a feast with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, notice he won't even refer to him as his brother. When this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes, you celebrate by killing the fattened calf. I mean, this kid stands outside the house and says, I will not go into that house. It's now a house of sin after that brothel going brother of mine goes into the house and now my father is getting so hoodwinked by him. Honestly, truthfully, religious people are very quick to assume that God is being fooled by people when they repent. Let's just understand, God is not fooled by people. God understands whether someone's heart is genuine or not. We do not. We should be the first to celebrate. Let God worry about how genuine it is or is not. And again, celebrating and restoring are two different things. Restoration comes from wisdom. It comes from a track record. It comes from observing trustworthiness. But celebration should never be withheld. I should always be ready to celebrate when someone comes home to God. Let God sort out the legitimacy of it because he sees the heart. And by the way, on the topic of restoration, and we'll come back to this, but I want you to see this. This is the father's response to the son. Look, dear son, you've always stayed by me and everything I have is yours. What is he saying when he says everything I have is yours? He's saying, while we are celebrating your younger brother coming back, I cannot wave a magic wand over the situation and somehow make his inheritance reappear. And I will not take your inheritance and redivide it to give him inheritance. What was squandered cannot be regained. And that is the truth about life that we live in. And the thing that we should be teaching our teenagers is that there are real consequences to our choices and there are things that once we squander them, they cannot be recovered. And yet God celebrates over our return to him even after we've made those kinds of mistakes. We can always go home. The question was, why don't they come to their senses? By the way, now when we say somebody coming to their senses, usually we mean that in a logical way. They, they realize something. But that's actually not where we get the phrase. We get the phrase from the idea of someone who was unconscious regaining their consciousness, coming to their senses. Because when you're unconscious, you don't feel, and you don't smell, and you don't taste, and you don't hear. So a person regains their senses all at once when they regain consciousness. And that's actually quite a good metaphor because in the scripture over and over again, being stuck in a pattern of sin is treated like being in darkness, being unconscious, being dead. There's the sense in which God is saying that, that, as a matter of fact, there's one point at which the scripture talks about people having their understanding, understanding darkened. It's like we don't feel what we're doing, and so we persist in a bad way. Um, and an example of this is in the scripture, uh, the, the illness of leprosy is often used to represent sin. And the, and the reason why that's the case, leprosy is a, a nerve-destroying, da uh, nerve-damaging uh, uh, illness that at the time there was no cure for, there was no treatment for, and it would begin to eat away at a person's digits, and they would lose feeling. Before, before they would lose flesh, they would lose feeling. And so in their, in their fingers and their hands, they would begin to bump into things or they would burn themselves and they would not realize that they had damaged themselves until it was too late and the damage was permanent. And so it's really important that we understand that when Satan tempts us with sin, part of it is a numbing effect. Satan doesn't just want us to get us in a pattern of sin. He wants to get us numb to the pattern of sin so that we don't realize the damage that we're doing to ourselves. Why don't they come to their senses? And what kind of a role am I supposed to play in that, And there are two things I think that make this even more critical. If you've ever been around a desperado, most of us have had a season of our life where we were really in the desperado track and we've learned that there are two lessons that desperados tend to learn the hard way. The first one is that often the most attractive paths in life are the most painful in the end. The Bible separates out 
paths from destinations. We understand that, that being on a path is not the same as arriving at the destination. So what happens is God often offers us a wonderful destination, but maybe it is at the end of a challenging path or a disciplined path or a path that is going to require more work than another, while Satan, in offering temptation, the definition of temptation is an attractive path that leads to a very unattractive destination. So we know that, we've learned that. And then the second thing is this, the second thing is you will not master the desperado life. Many of us have learned this personally, the desperado life will master you. There's a scripture that talks about having an alcohol addiction where it says you will see hallucinations and you will say crazy things. You will stagger like a sailor tossed to sea, clinging to a swaying mast. And you will say, they hit me, but I didn't feel it. I didn't even know it when they beat me up. Do you hear that theme of being unaware, right? And then it says, when will I wake up so that I can do what? so that I can look for another drink. Not mastering the life. Although I've sat across from so many people who've given me some version of this, I can control it. I can handle it. I've got this, I've got this under control. And maybe there's a season where that is true. But I promise, you go for the cheese long enough, the mousetrap is gonna snap on you. And then you won't be able to get loose. This much I probably know about you. If you love a desperado, chances are your biggest worry is that they won't come to their senses before it's too late. That's why the song kind of grabs at our heartstrings. We recognize this is a time-limited thing. They've gotta make a turnaround. And so that time pressure, it really feels hard on us that they really need to come to their senses. So what should you do? If you're really invested in a person coming to their senses, what should you do? And I told you we're gonna talk about um, three things about loving a desperado God's way. Since I knew I was gonna have very little time this is the, the number three thing that we wanna make sure that you get, and that is that you can't bar the door. You can't bar the door. Or, or another way of saying that is you can't force someone to make the right choice. It'd be lovely if you could, but you cannot. Now, we are talking about adults. When you have small children, we do have to set some very strong boundaries. The smaller the child, the, the stronger the boundaries. Why? Because we, are, we have the maturity of understanding things that are dangerous that our kids don't understand. But we also have the responsibility of teaching our children over time about these things so that by the time they're teenagers and they're starting to differentiate and they're starting to become their own person, they are prepared to take on more and more individual responsibility so that by the time they're 18 and they leave home, they are prepared to make their choices because no one should be able to force them at that point into doing something because they're an adult. When we have an adult in our life and they're making bad choices, it's lovely to think that somehow we could make them make the right decision. Let me set you free from that. In the name of Jesus, you cannot make them make the right decision. You cannot come to someone's senses for them. You can't. Although I've seen people try things. For instance, I've seen, I mean, you can block somebody from making a choice physically sometimes, but you cannot change their heart. That's the important thing, right? One of my, my pastor at my old church in Oklahoma used to love to tell the story of little Billy in Sunday school class. Little Billy probably like me, I have, I have ADHD, little Billy probably did too. He just insisted on standing up during the Bible story time. The teacher would say, Billy, you have to sit down. It's a Bible story time. Billy wouldn't sit down. Billy, sit down. And he'd keep doing that. Nothing would happen. Eventually, the Sunday school teacher went over to little Billy, put his, put his hands on Billy's shoulders and scooched him down. That's a, that's a spiritual term, scooch. Scooched him down into his, his seat, right? And, and little Billy looked up at him and said, I may be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside, right? The father understood that if the son was already in the far off country in his heart, are you hearing me? If the son was already in the far off country in his heart, that keeping him in that house wouldn't change a thing. 
wouldn't change a thing. You can, you, can, you can force somebody to be somewhere physically, but you can't change their heart. The second thing, uh, well, actually, let me, I, I was going to skip past the scripture, but it's so important that I, I just need to cover it. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks to the church at Corinth. And if you want to understand the church at Corinth, if you want to get the culture, kind of what it was like, it's very much like maybe two different reality shows on MTV. It's like the cast of those two shows get saved and start a church. They have a lot of weird questions and a lot of weird stuff that they've got to sort through, right? Kind of messy, but, but good, wonderful, but they have a lot of messy questions that Paul has to address. And one of those questions is they have people who are getting saved, and this is at a time where it's very dangerous to be a Christian, but their spouse doesn't get saved. So some spouses are, are concerned about the danger of having a spouse who's a Christian. Others just don't like being married to a Christian. They're threatening divorce. And the church writes, Paul, what do we do about that? I want you to notice what Paul says. If the husband or wife who isn't a believer insists on leaving, do what? Let them go. Why? Because you cannot bar the door. We do not have the ability to make somebody have a heart change. Secondly, you can only hold a person back for so long. I've seen this over and over again. Kids that were in rigid situations all the way up through being 18, that where a parent is trying to block them from doing things so that, so that they've got no concern, no anxiety that their kid is gonna do the wrong thing. It's almost really trying to medicate the parent's anxiety more than anything else. And then as soon as that kid turns 18, what happens? They go so hardcore off the rails, it's not funny because now those limitations are not there anymore. Instead of that parent helping that child learn to do the right things, the parent has dictated the right things to the point where once that child turns 18, they start dictating their own life and they have to learn all these things the hard way at that point. I always think about the lever on a pinball machine. The farther you pull it back, the farther it's going the other direction. The harder you control, the more it's gonna ricochet the other way. Third, you're gonna need them to think of you as a safe person later on. It's so important that the son said, at home the hired servants have food enough to spare and here I'm dying of hunger. I will go home to whom? My father. Why? Because my father is a safe person because I know that my father is the kind of person that a person can come home to. But if the father had tried to manipulate, and I hate to use the M word, but I'm gonna use it. If the, if the so many of us, we say things like, this is what I want for them. I want for them to be a better person in this way or that way. And, I, and it sounds benevolent, but actually what it is is manipulative. I cannot want something for someone. I can want it for my sake. I can want them to do something different for my sake, but I cannot try to coach somebody into being a better person, not unless they've invited me to be their coach. Ultimately, right, I need to be a safe person, for, first and foremost, because if you're a safe person, you are the person who will get the call at two o'clock in the morning when they finally come to their senses been a heavy talk. And I get that. I told my wife when I went home last night, I said, I think people held their breath the entire time I was talking. <laughs> but I want to give you a few things that are overarching truths that you need to ad adopt as we spend these four weeks together. And I do hope that you'll come back for the rest of the weeks as we get deeper into this. The first thing I want you to remember is it's not over. Just because right now it seems like it's all falling apart. I mean, think about this. If the father takes a snapshot of the day that his son goes to the far off country, it very much looks like it's all over. But you have to understand, God takes the long look. 
God understands the long look, and we have to, this is what faith is about. Faith is the evidence of things uh, that we don't see. It is trusting that God has the outcome and leaving it with him and saying, God, I grieve over my loved one doing this, but you have the outcome and I'm leaving it with you. It's not over. Charles Spurgeon, the famous preacher, talked in one of his sermons about parents who bury their children alive. And what he meant was that parents were saying that their kids were dead to them. My son is dead to me because of the choices that kid is making, but that kid still has opportunity and the potential to turn around. None of us needs to bury someone alive. That coworker, that sister, that brother, that parent, that, that child, you have to understand that there is still room for recovery. There's still room for redemption. The Bible says in 2 Samuel 14, God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises, he crafts, he machines. Those of, those of you in the room who are machinists, the, the word here actually is very much like God is creating the machinery that is designed to bring this person home. So that means that while that person may have gone past opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to come home and they keep blowing past those, what it means is that God is still designing yet another road home and another road home and another road home and another road home and he's not gonna stop. God is gonna continue machining opportunities for that person to come home and anytime that person wants to turn around and come home, that is the beauty of the God that we serve. Repentance can happen at any time, at any time. Second, we all have desperado tendencies. And that's what Jesus needed the Pharisees to learn. Jesus was frustrated because the Pharisees saw all those desperados out there and us. But the truth is we all have the desperado problem. Now there are those of us that are doing our best to live our life in alignment with God, but even at that, we carry around within ourselves a desperado spirit that will, that will pull us away from time to time, and we will have to fight that on a regular basis. So what we need to understand is it is not us and them, it is us. There are those of us that are living the desperado life to different degrees, but to understand that it is not as though we can look down on a person because of the choices that they're making. Rather, we can, we can, we can come together with them and say, I know, I have the same problem you do. I I tend to fall away from God. I tend to make mistakes. I tend to do the wrong thing. It's not you are completely different from me because of what you're doing, but we both need a savior. Some of us say, I don't know how to witness. I don't know how to tell somebody about my faith. I just told you. The thing to do is to be honest with somebody. I'm a desperado as much as you are, but that's why both of us need a savior. We need a savior because there's gotta be somebody who can give us a way back to God even when we've been so far away from him. When I was a kid, we had flashcards. When I was a preschooler, we had flashcards so I would learn the alphabet. I learned the alphabet with these cards that had a verse for every letter of the alphabet. And for A, the verse was all of us like sheep have strayed away, we have left God's path to follow our own. Uh, I don't know if any of you, it's a, it is, we are an agricultural state. I don't know if you've ever worked with sheep, but sheep are dumb and they're stubborn. I mean, in this world, you can afford to be dumb and humble, or you can afford to be right and stubborn, but you cannot afford to be dumb and stubborn, but sheep are that way. And God is saying that, at all, point, that all of us at some point have been dumb and stubborn, but that Jesus dying on the cross is adequate to get a dumb and stubborn person like Jonathan Hoover home to a God who loves him. And this is the last thing I wanna share with you. You can't do God's part, but you must do your part. What is your part? Well, this is in Proverbs chapter four, Guard whose heart, church? Which heart are you supposed to guard? Your heart. Guard your heart above all else for it determines the course of your life. Too many of us as Christians have abdicated our job guarding our heart to go guard someone else's heart. 
I have people ask me all the time, Jonathan, what do you think about these moral failures of these pastors that were very successful and suddenly it comes up that there's been this huge moral failure? I don't think it's because they're evil people. What I think is that they, they quit guarding their own heart in the process of trying to guard everyone else's heart. We cannot do that. It is God's business to guard other people's hearts. It is our job to stand watch at the gate of our heart and guard our heart and first of all, be who God has called us to be. If you do not be who God has called you to be, there will be no consistency for that person to come home to. Because when that person finally hits rock bottom, you know who they're gonna be looking for? They're gonna be looking for the person who's real, who is really what they say they are. And if we don't do our part, we won't be that person. Let God do his part. Say, God, I'm giving you that person because I've tried to manipulate, I've tried to pressure, I've tried to do all those things, none of that stuff has worked. So I'm giving you that person, but meanwhile, I'm gonna work on me, I'm gonna guard my heart, I'm gonna do my job, so that someday when that person is ready to come to their senses, they know who to pick up the phone and call. I've done this in the previous two services, I wanna do it now. As I was preparing for this talk this week, I could not get past the fact that I felt like God was impressing on me that I needed to be praying for parents whose adult kids were making bad choices. So I'm gonna do that before I turn you loose. I'm gonna ask everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes. I don't know who I'm talking to in the room. I would suspect probably several people who have an adult kid and they're breaking your heart and you do grieve when you see their picture and when you hear the stories of what's going on. It's my joy and my privilege right now to take you before the throne of the Father and say, that together we join as a body of Christ in asking for the redemption of that person. Father, we thank you so much for what you do in our lives. And Father, we thank you for saving desperados like us. And we pray for those in this room that are parents that have children that are making poor choices. We pray that you would give them wisdom, you would give them patience, understanding, and a heart that is like yours to serve and to celebrate the, the positive changes, um, and also to have the healthy boundaries that are needed for the best outcome to happen. Father, more than anything, we leave those situations at your feet because we trust you to be a big enough God to handle this and everything else. We know that you can handle this, um, and we'll give you, we promise, we promise, we'll give you all the glory um, for any good thing that happens in each of these lives because it must be you. It must be you who does it. And so we claim that in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for being here. We'll see you next week. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.